This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Overcoming the Franken-Cycle, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today I'm talking with Jonathan Wick, Vice President of Health Insights at FinThrive about improving revenue cycle performance. But first, let's find out what's happening in healthcare finance news. Here's HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. Hey everyone, we're going back to the topic of the No Surprises Act. It's surely the topic we've talked about the most and beyond the news. And that's because it continues to be a significant concern to healthcare stakeholders, especially providers. The latest news involves government data quantifying the backlog of cases in the independent dispute resolution portal, aka the arbitration portal for determining out-of-network payments. And there's also a substantial increase in the administrative fee that you have to pay to participate in this arbitration. Sean, what do you make of all this? I guess that there's no way of sugarcoating this, Nick. It's it's a big failure on CMS's part and the tri-agencies in getting the IDR process up and estimating what the true impact was going to be. I mean, I can't imagine it being much worse at this point. You know, we've seen 90,078 cases filed so far. Only 23,107 of those have been resolved. I guess the surprise, quote unquote, to CMS and the agencies has been that, you know, April 15th through June 30th of last year, only 18,163 cases were filed. But then the the cases just blew up between July 1st and September 30th of almost 72,000 filed. So I do give them a little bit of relief there in in saying that the second quarter versus the third quarter filing, you know, the third quarter was much more increased. So that volume did explode. But still to have this big, large of a backlog with only 23,000, being resolved this far is a complete failure in the process, right? Yeah, it it is. They totally missed the mark. And it's hard to to know how they, you know, underestimated the volume of cases to such an extent. One thing that maybe has providers up in arms even more right now is the fee increase. Both parties now will have to pay $350 per case for any dispute they want to take to arbitration. That's up from $50 in 2022. And that $50 rate is what we've been led to believe as of late December would still be the rate for 2023. Then two days before Christmas, we get word that the rate would be increasing by what, 600%? HHS's justification is that the amount of effort going into willing down the backlog of cases that you just referred to, Sean, including by investigating whether cases are even eligible for the IDR process in the first place, that that additional work necessitates this increase in terms of the effort being and the burden being shouldered by both federal employees and contractors. I think some provider advocates have a sneaking suspicion that the fee increase is 
meant to alleviate the backlog by discouraging stakeholders from ever taking disputes to arbitration in the first place. In other words, providers and health plans would be encouraged now to stick to negotiating among themselves to settle on the out-of-network payment. And if that's the route you're going to go, then certainly many providers would tend to be at a disadvantage in terms of leverage in such a scenario. So it's a tough situation without question. What are some quick recommendations, do you think, at least for ensuring that all or most of the disputes you initiate are valid under the No Surprises Act IDR process? Yeah, Nick, you know, those fees are astronomical increases, I agree. And keep in mind that you're mentioning just the administrative fees. You're not mentioning the fees associated with the IDR entity. So these are administrative fees that are non-refundable to both parties. It is not the IDR fee that is paid by the loser. So there's the IDR fee on top of that. But yeah, I mean, definitely a learning curve here for providers or for parties initiating the IDR process. You know, CMS published in their report, which keep in mind, their report is not a complete report that they promised because it was such a manual process. They didn't have time to calculate all the data that they had promised to calculate. But they did show a great increase in not complete filings. Most of those were folks who filed, initiated the disputes, didn't include QPA or didn't include supporting documentation, so they were not complete filings. Another learning curve that initiating entities had was they were filing when IDR processes when state jurisdiction ruled over determining the qualified payment amount for the specific claim that they were filing on. So that federal versus state jurisdiction determination you need to make before you file with an IDR, whether you need to take it to the state or to the federal IDR process, determine that up front. So you need to make sure that you know the health plan, whether that health plan is is controlled at a state level or at the federal level. And then, you know, there's other things that folks really need to take a hard look at. There is a checklist out there that CMS provides on everything that you need when you initiate an IDR request. So please, I think that was downloaded last year in June, maybe June 3rd. I think CMS published that list. So please make sure that you are utilizing that list if you're following IDR disputes. And, you know, we saw, I don't know if you noticed, Nick, but Texas definitely led the IDR filings for the first two quarters, the second and third quarters. They came in at almost 25,000, 28% of the IDR disputes filed followed by Florida at 10,000, Georgia at 7,000, Tennessee 7,000, North Carolina 5, and Virginia 4. So just a handful of states, about six states, really made up the majority of the filings. I don't think we should discourage providers from filing. It's very clear that with this number of filings, there are issues with assigning these qualified payment amounts. I just really encourage providers to seek education and to educate their folks who are filing the IDR appeals that if they're filing, it is sound that they are going to win, if that makes sense. Really take a look at the money you're spending to make sure that you're going to win the case. Yep. No, that certainly resonates. Very important insight to keep in mind. There are a few things all stakeholders can do to improve the situation, but certainly the the impetus is uh, largely on, on HHS to come up with solutions. So thanks, John, as always, for the keen insight. In the show notes, we'll include the link to this report that we've been referring to on the IDR process based on data from between April and September of last year. Uh, There's a lot of interesting information in there if you're curious about how things are going with this whole deal. So thanks, everyone. Talk to you next time. 
In February, 2020, I recorded an interview that never saw the light of day. I was talking with Jonathan Wick, who is today the Vice President of Health Insights at FinThrive about how to reduce denials. It wasn't long until COVID coverage superseded everything else I was doing at the time. So I put that sound file into a folder I naively named interviews to save for post COVID. I listened back to that conversation not long ago and so much of it still rang true, but denial rates have risen during the last three years and workforce issues have been exacerbated by the pandemic. So I called in WIC for a fresh conversation about revenue cycle challenges and a path to real improvement. The first question seems a little broad and unfair, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What are the biggest challenges facing the revenue cycle workforce today? I think it's the D word. Um, I, I still hear that all the time, Eric. It's denials for sure. I was at several conferences this last week, HFMA, traveling around the country when I speak. And at HFMA Annual, there was even a panel there that talked about denials. And um, I think Phoenix Children's and Banner and some others were there. They had mentioned, hey, if you kept everything else constant, you know, what would your denials rate be, right? Like if you kept your patients constant, your contracts constant, your staffing constant, your technology constant, you would think, you know, logically, not that there's that much logic in it, <laughs> but your denials would go down, right? You're like, oops, they didn't pay us last time. We need to check that box or cross that T or provide that piece of documentation. But over time, you know, you would start to understand what types of things your payers needed for you to get paid. And you would categorize inventory and start to provide those things over time if all things were kept constant and you'd have a denial rate that maybe was, you know, 5% 10 years ago. And now it's 1% today. And that 1%, you're hoping to get to zero over time. But we all know that isn't the case. And it's, in fact, opposite of that. That panel shared that, you know, denials were running around 1% nationally of the uh, net patient revenue, which is millions of dollars for most hospitals. And that's triple. It's running three. I've even seen as high as five, 6% of NPR now. And uh, I think hospitals now are beating their chest saying, <laughs> this isn't fair payers. And um, you guys have to stop playing hardball. They're actually suing them in court. I don't know that attorneys solve things necessarily. And I think the panel shared that as well. We need more collaboration. There was a session on that at HFMA annual as well. Other things kind of challenging the RCM workforce you know, right now is that there's less of them. You know, I finished this labor report. I shared it with you. About a third of the workforce um, has left since the pandemic. Um, that's amplified in nursing. When I'm talking to revenue management and revenue cycle, they're saying that it's up 10%, 10 to 20%. So they're on the lower end of that. So what that means is if you were running a, a revenue cycle of, of 100 folks, you're running with 90. And before that, you probably were running with 95 and you just it, it went even worse. We talk about patient financial conversations a lot. We don't talk as much um, about the payer financial conversation, but it's really, really important. Totally. But yeah. from what I'm hearing, too, is the workforce shortages, the issues are not all hospitals and health systems. The payers are suffering these same issues, too. And so it seems like it's in everybody's best interest and maybe payers would be more open to, yeah, we don't want our people in this carousel either. So let's talk about it and let's figure it out so we can pay your claim, deny your claim, whatever we're going to do with it and we're done or whatever the case may be. I know I'm simplifying it a lot, but 
No, you bet. Every pair I've talked to, we had a pair panel at our Colorado HFMA event last week, too. And um, I, we need to get more pairs there. I, one one day, Erica, you and I will be in a conference room and they will be the majority of the audience versus the minority. They're like deer, right? You never see them. <laughs> With their ears up and then they kind of bolt when people know that they're there. <laughs> and I think they're scared and they, and they shouldn't be. I, I think there's just a lot of um, animosity between those two entities now, the provider and the payer, and you need to bring them back to the table. And I completely agree with you. I mean, I worked for a payer. I wanted nothing less than to have less people working on things that should be automated. And payers have been very automated for a very long time. They have an eligibility clearinghouse and a claims processing and adjudication clearinghouse. And what all that means is things come in electronically. It should go through. Yep, this is my patient. Yep, this is covered. Yep, I'm going to pay it and out the door it goes. Those three things, right? If that happened, you and I wouldn't have jobs. It doesn't. I don't know if this is my patient or not. How come you typed in WIC with a C instead of an I? How come you typed in Grotto with one T? Wait a minute, this is her baby, not her. It's this mess. You know, this is out of network or in network. Don't get me started on No Surprises Act and those things. But, you know, I'm sorry, you went to the wrong place. Erica, you should have went to this place. We sent you the book that no one ever reads, but the book that said all the places that you can go, and this isn't one of them. You're welcome to go there. This is America, but for us to pay for it, you have to go to these ones for it to hit the contract. So payers absolutely want to not have to touch things. And I think there's a lot of work on the provider side where if people just talk, that would get better. I think providers right now are just in such an angry mood that they don't want to really be accountable to what they're actually sending to. Like, charts should go with stuff that requires a chart, right? Um, authorization should go with stuff that requires an off. Claims should not have things on it that were twice or, or priced like 30 times higher than someone else. Those types of things are all things that we have to introspectively look at. I could talk to any provider, any CRO, CFO in the country and say, Hey, do you think you're sending your claims clean to the payer? They all would say no. I, they said they're probably doing a pretty good job, but most clean claim rates are aspiring to get to 90%, which means 10 to somewhere 25, 30% of stuff's going over is garbage. It doesn't have the information complete or it's inaccurate. So you got to look at that technology as well and kind of make sure that what you're sending is good. It's, it's homework and it's going to get graded by the payer. Trust me. And they're tough. <laughs> and they have to have resources and staff, to your point, to validate that information. And if it's not correct, that takes that time on them. So absolutely, it's a point well taken. Payer provider collaboration, I think, is huge to where getting those parties there going, okay, what's driving us both nuts? Is there a way that we can connect that piece of data in a more accurate, efficient way to where we can both see it? I think we'd see a lot less administrative expense every study that's out there, HFMA, JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine said there's billions of dollars with a B of waste because of the rules that the payer has and the inefficiencies that the provider has. And if we could kind of bring both those down, I think you'd see healthcare costs come down too. Yeah, well, that seems like a good place to end. So Jonathan Wick, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the director of content. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. I hope by now you've seen our new website. If you haven't, I highly recommend you check it out. There's a transcript of every podcast episode, as well as a blog post, not to mention all the other content we produce. Take a look at hfma.org. Did I go on too long?